thank you all um, for being here to worship the Lord this day. Thank you to those of you who came on Thursday for the Trunk or Treat event and who made it all possible uh, with the food that was brought in and the tables that got rearranged and all the work that went into that. Um, that was a marvelous time of fellowship and gathering. Um, it's it's a season of giving thanks uh, this month of November as we approach Thanksgiving. Um, and it's a good reminder for us to always be thankful for, uh, for all of the Lord's blessings, which include each other. It's not just the stuff that we have or the house that we have to live in or the clothes or whatever, the food, but the people that are in our lives that, uh, that are, are the true blessings uh, that God has given to us. Um, even sometimes when it doesn't seem like they're always blessings. The, the relationships that we have are, uh, are, are what make life meaningful for us. So I'm grateful for you and for, for all the work that goes into the life of this church. Let's take a moment to, uh, to quiet ourselves and prepare ourselves for this encounter with God's word, which really has already begun with our worship service and with the reading of the gospel and the other scriptures that we've heard today. Uh, but let's take a moment to, uh, to set aside all of those distracting thoughts, all of those worries, concerns, fears. Uh, you can pick them up later if you wish. But for now, we can, we can uh, set our attention squarely on, on what the Lord is saying to us this day. Let's take a moment to prepare ourselves that way. Lord God, I give you thanks for this time that we uh, set aside each week to listen for your voice as a group, as a body of believers. I thank you that you have drawn us into this fellowship, that, uh, that we belong to each other, that we of the, the same body, that we are members of the body of Christ, and uh, that each of us has a, a unique and meaningful and specific role to play in that body, whether we know it or realize it or not. I thank you for this, uh, for this time when we've been able to, to rejoice in the, sal- the salvation that we have in and through Christ. All in Jesus, as the song said. All of, all of our, uh, our, our hopes are fulfilled. All of our sins are forgiven. Your grace is completely free. And we give you thanks for that. As we turn our attention now to this, um, to this book of Galatians that we'll be looking at for the next month, um, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts that we might hear your voice clearly and know how best to orient ourselves as members of this body and as uh, servants in your kingdom. Bless this time, we pray, in your holy and precious name. Amen. We are entering into the final month of our fall journal series. We're still calling it the fall journal series, even though that white stuff has started to fall outside. It's not winter yet, doggone it. And in this final month, this November of our fall journal series, we're going to be walking through the book of Galatians, a short letter that Paul wrote to a series of churches, a group of churches in a region called Galatia. It's not one city like Ephesians was written to a church in one city, Ephesus. 
Galatians was written to many churches in a region called Galatia. Um, And it's a, a short letter that you can read in one sitting. It's only six chapters long. And in fact, I'd encourage you to do that each week this month. Uh, just to sit down and read all of Galatians in one sitting. Do it this week sometime. Do it next week. Do it the week after. Each week. And see if anything jumps out at you. See if you notice any common themes. In our purposes, for our purposes, in this journal, we're going to be looking for the theme of grace. As a way of connecting to the season of Thanksgiving. We say grace at the beginning of a meal. That's kind of an odd phrase. We say grace. What does that mean? Uh, but the idea is that, that uh, grace has something to do with giving thanks. And we'll find that theme in this letter of the Galatians, uh, to the Galatians, even though um, Paul the author is not always super thankful in this letter. It's kind of a difficult letter in some, in some sense. But to begin, before we get to Galatians itself, I'd like to get your input and ask for your Uh, your thoughts about the definition of grace. I've already said it has something to do with Thanksgiving. um, And and there's that bit about praying before you eat, I suppose. But when I say grace, what comes to mind? What does grace mean to you? Sorry? Thankfulness. Uh Something we don't deserve. Yeah. Um, I'll add to that a little bit in a good way, right? I mean, sometimes we get things we don't deserve that are bad, but grace is generally kind of positive. Something you don't deserve that's good. Yes? I think building off of that, <coughs> mm-hmm. it's kind of like something you don't deserve that's, that's given freely and without like necessary repayment. It's not like here's the yeah. and now you owe me a favor. It's just... Right. Yeah. It's a free gift and it does not require repayment. I like it. That's good. Freedom. freedom. Why would you say freedom? <laughs> I mean, I noticed that it happens to be the title of this sermon, Grace and Freedom. Yeah. So, you know, you're fine. It's good. You're going in order here. This is good. <laughs> Mm, a breaking of chains. I like it. Okay. Good, good, good. Love. Grace is love. Do you want to say any more about that, Nancy? I mean, that's one word. That's a good word. That's a good word. It's, it's an internal experience that uh, grace is, is known to us through our response of love to God's love to us. I'm trying to summarize that for you. Yeah, I, I like that too. That's good. Mm-hmm. Mercy. Grace and mercy have a lot to do with each other, don't they? Right. Uh, mercy is another, uh, uh, almost a synonym maybe. 
but uh, it helps us to think about what grace looks like. If someone has ever expressed mercy to you, or you have expressed mercy to another person, that, that's an, an expression of grace, for sure. Along the lines of something that you don't deserve, something you don't have to pay back. Right. Mm-hmm. Grace is all of these things, and more, I'm sure. Um, I'm wondering, we have a, a handful of our youth here today. If you remember, teenagers, we spent the month of September in our Sunday evening youth meetings thinking about grace. I don't want to put anybody on the spot here, but do any of you remember what we said in terms of what grace is in that context? See, okay, Caitlin, yeah. I didn't want to put anybody on the spot. Yeah, good. Grace is the strength to carry on, or the ability to endure. And in that sense, uh, we're thinking about the effects of grace. Um, this, this is a gift from God that is given to us, and that helps us to make it through what we're experiencing. It's the, it's the strength that God gives us to carry on. It's a free gift that we don't deserve, and it's something that we, uh, we don't repay to God. All of these other definitions have to do with the source of grace. It comes from God. It's a gift from God. And then the effect of grace is that it enables us to live well, to live whole, to live abundantly. It's, it's a term that can wrap around the entirety of what this whole Christian endeavor is about. The salvation that we have, the forgiveness that we have in Christ is all summarized by the idea of grace. There are a lot of ways to approach grace, and these are all good ideas. For uh, the next few weeks in our, in our sermons here, we're going to be approaching grace by looking at it from four unique or four distinct angles. Grace and freedom, which Tara already tipped the uh, hat toward. Um, that's today, grace and freedom. Grace and generosity. Grace and spirit and then grace and community. So we'll be thinking about grace sort of from the perspective of each of those four uh, other concepts, uh, especially as they appear in the letter to the Galatians. So today, grace and freedom, which we could spend another five minutes talking about definitions of that. What does freedom mean? But we won't. We'll turn our attention to the text here. Uh, the text for today is Galatians 1, 6, and 7, and then chapter 2, 1 through 5. And today, in a little bit of a, a difference from what I normally do, I'm going to read it twice. Once from the New International Version, which is the Pew Bible that we have here, and uh, what we often hear. But I'm also going to read it then next from the New Living Translation, um, there are a multitude of translations out there, and it's important to be reading multiple translations so that you can pick up on different nuances of the text. And there are just a couple of nuances that the NIV doesn't pick up on, that the New Living Translation does, and vice versa in this passage. So I'm going to read it twice. Galatians 1, 6, and 7, and then 2, 1 through 5. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. In chapter 2, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. And now those same verses from the New Living Translation. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Fourteen years later, I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. While I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message I had been preaching to the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, even though he was a Gentile. Even that question came up only because of some so-called Christians there, false ones really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In any passage of scripture, we can try to put on the perspectives of the different characters of the story and see how they fit to see if the shoe fits, so to speak. So there are three perspectives that I'd like for us to try on for size this morning. The first is the perspective of the false Christians, the false brothers, the so-called Christians. People who were willingly distorting the gospel of Jesus, twisting the message to suit their own purposes. In this instance, they were trying to force Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians, to follow the law of Moses, the Jewish law. Um, In particular, they were concerned about the practice of circumcision, which for centuries had been the mark, the physical mark, 
for men, we should say only, that, uh, that signified that they were part of the covenant people of God. This had been the routine, the ritual for babies, infants, eight days old, for as long as anybody had remembered. It had been written in the law, and all of the Christians who had come out of Judaism, who had grown up as Jews, understood that that was the the way that God worked. But Paul, as a missionary to non-Jewish people, began to introduce non-Jews to Jesus, And uh, they began to put their faith in him. And the question arose, should these people then become converts to Judaism in addition to following Jesus? And Paul's thought was, no, this should not be the case. But these so-called Christians, these false believers, were really very pedantic about this legalistic, moralistic way of approaching Christian faith. They should follow this law, they said. They should be morally and ethically and spiritually pure, according to that law of Moses. We can wonder about what their motivations might have been. It could be that they just loved the tradition that they had, or perhaps they wanted to preserve their morality, the morality of their society. Maybe they wanted to maintain control or power or wealth, or influence, or popularity. Maybe it was just their own desire that they wanted to see uh, maintained in the culture as, as time moved on. Can you see yourself in their shoes? The second perspective to try on for size is the perspective of the recipients of this letter, the Galatian Christians, These are not Jews. These are people who are part of the Roman Empire, but uh, believers in Jesus. And as they receive this letter, something odd happens uh, to them as they read it for the first time. Because you see, in letters of this type, there is a very common formula that appears not just in the letters of Scripture, but in many letters of the time in which they were written. There is the uh, identification of the author, Paul, a disciple of Jesus, an apostle sent by Christ, something like this, and Timothy or whoever's with him doing the writing, to whoever they're writing to, in this case, the Christians in the churches in Galatia. And then there's a, a blessing, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, something like this. Very common formulaic thing, and the very next thing that almost always happens is a grand thanksgiving. We thank the Lord every time we think of you. We praise the Lord every time that we remember you in our prayers. Uh, And it can go on for many, many verses. That is missing from this letter. The next thing that Paul says after, Hi, I'm Paul, writing to you the Galatians, grace and peace. I am shocked that you are turning away. It's not Thanksgiving at all. It's a very different kind of tone. These Galatian Christians were, in Paul's estimation of things, deserting God. They were turning from the gospel of Christ. They were being confused by other people's ideas. Maybe they had good motivations, but there were some serious issues here. And one of the serious issues that Paul develops in the entire letter is that uh, the Galatians were beginning to think that they could earn God's grace, that they could earn salvation or the mercy of God by being obedient to the law. In other words, if they were just circumcised, if they did what the law required, then God would give them 
grace. Can you see yourself in that position? It's usually easier or more natural for us to find other people in those situations. To point the finger at others rather than to find ourselves in those, in those situations. We can become very upset, righteously indignant, when we sense that someone is deliberately twisting the truth of the gospel of Christ. And we probably should become righteously indignant when that is happening. And we can become very sad on behalf of those who are uh, perhaps unfortunate enough to be gullibly uh, persuaded away from the gospel of Jesus. But we ourselves, no one wants to believe that they might actually be in one of these two groups. We don't like to admit our flaws. We don't like to admit that we might twist the gospel of Christ to suit our own desires. Surely that doesn't happen. And we don't like to admit that we might be led astray by a false teaching. No, our brains are on. Our heads are on straight. We're not going to be persuaded by something. But the truth is that each of us is capable, knowingly or unknowingly, of twisting the gospel to suit our own desires, or restricting the freedom of Christ, or distorting the truth of the gospel. Usually this happens because we want our religious faith to confirm our self-understanding. We have decided that we know the best way to live, and so we choose our religious beliefs that reinforce the notion of the best way to live. We elevate our personal freedom to such a high level that we sometimes subject God to that self-understanding. I am going to live this way, and look, God supports me in this way of living. Rather than turning that the other way around, God is this, and so I'm going to, to shape my life or allow God to shape my life in this way. When we think about freedom, we often internalize it and make it very personal. I have my own freedom, or we have our own freedom, and we are free to live in whatever, perhaps, way we choose. But there is a freedom that is higher than our personal freedom. There is truth that is higher than what we believe to be true. And this is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus. That God, in his grace, grants us freedom in Christ. That is a truth that is higher than what we believe to be true. That is a freedom that is higher than what we believe to be our own freedom. The grace that God gives us is higher than we are, higher than we can imagine. Freedom in Christ is not an opportunity for us to determine our self-boundaries, our, our own course of living. To be free in Christ doesn't mean we're free to do what we wish. But to be free in Christ is an invitation for us to submit to the truth of the gospel. I said there were three perspectives to take on for size in this passage. The first being the, the Judaizers, the, the so-called Christians, the ones that were trying to Judaize 
the, the new Jew, uh, Gentile Christians. The second being the Gentile Christians themselves. The third perspective to try on is Paul's perspective, the author of the letter. Keep in mind that Paul has been a Christian for many years now. He describes his path uh, of knowing Christ and growing in his faith uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, he mentions a time span of 14 years. For a decade and a half, Paul has been ministering to people. He's not new to the faith when he's writing this letter, but he decides that he needs to clarify something very important. Paul, in his ministry to the Gentiles, is not forcing them to obey the Jewish law, specifically regarding the practice of circumcision. Paul says that there is freedom in Christ. For, for early Christian leaders like Paul and like Peter, another one of the, the main apostles, one of the authors of the New Testament letters, this idea of freedom in Christ is central to what they're writing about. It's a phrase that shows up a number of times. And most of the time, freedom in Christ is contrasted with the idea of slavery to the law. We could be slaves to the Jewish law, the law of Moses, or we can be free in Christ. And the message is always that we're transitioning from being slaves to the law to being free in Christ. Uh, Jesus has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But there's a very subtle idea that shows up in the writings of Paul and Peter and some of the others. We are not set free from all things so that we can be ourselves or live to ourselves. We are set free in Christ so that we can become slaves of Christ. And this is where things get a little uncomfortable because we don't like to be thought of as slaves. We don't like to think of ourselves as slaves. And so many of our English translations will modify that word a bit, the word slaves, and we'll see the word servants, servants of Christ. Oh, that makes us a little bit, we're, we're, that's a little bit better. Anyway, we, we, we feel better about ourselves when we think about ourselves as servants rather than slaves. But regardless of the word you use, the, the idea is very straightforward. Freedom in Jesus means being very deeply and, uh, and, uh, and intensely attached and connected and bonded to Jesus. It's, it's something that it is a, a, an oxymoron almost of, of, of terms that this freedom is something that actually binds us to Christ. Peter picks up on this theme, second Peter two, second uh, Peter two nineteen. Peter says that we are slaves to whatever has mastered us. And he's calling people to be free from things that keep them in sin, uh, to, to not be a slave to things that keep us apart from God. Uh, but to think that we are slaves to whatever has mastered us is really a very positive thing if our master is Jesus. We are slaves to Jesus who has mastered us. At least that is the, the, the goal of this Christian life, to be so connected to Christ that he is our Lord. And this is a good thing in the end, from beginning to end, because Jesus is love incarnate. Jesus is not an evil taskmaster. Jesus is not uh, uh, the harshest critic in the world. Jesus is love. 
Jesus is joy and peace and patience, the fruit of the Spirit. How do we know that the Spirit of Christ lives in us? Paul writes about it uh, toward the end of this letter of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit of Christ living in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against those things there is no law. There is only freedom in, in those things. It's a beautiful idea that when we accept the good news of Jesus, the Spirit of God dwells in us and transforms us into new and abundant and full life. That's the good news. That's grace. It's something that we cannot earn ourselves. It is an unmerited gift that comes from God. And our response to this gift of grace should mirror the example of Paul in this passage, not the other two categories. I, tried, I ask you to try those on for size. Uh, don't try those on too hard. Try Paul's shoes on for size. Even after 14 years of ministry, Paul was sensitive to God's voice. He responded to a revelation from God. He says in, in uh, chapter 2, he, he takes this question of circumcision and the law to the leaders in Jerusalem because God had spoken to him. He was sensitive to that voice. And because of that revelation, Paul chose to humble himself. Notice how he does this. He describes, I guess you have to take it with a grain of salt because he's describing himself. So he's going to put himself in the best light probably, but we'll take the word as the word. He, he humbles himself before those church leaders, the early leaders in Jerusalem. He goes to them privately and asks them this question about the Gentiles. What should we do? Should we ask them to follow the law of Moses or not? Paul doesn't seem to assume that his ideas, his beliefs, were the only way to do it. He did not demand that they went along with his ideas. He consulted with these other leaders and trusted that the wisdom of the Holy Spirit would guide them to maintain the truth of the gospel. Now, Paul knew when to stand up for what was right. He was not a pushover by any stretch. And when you read Galatians, you'll realize that the way he talks about circumcision, it gets a little graphic. And that's, he means it that way. So pay attention to that when you read it, because he's not mincing words, so to speak. Paul knows when to stand up for the truth of the gospel, but he knows that freedom in Christ is an invitation to submit ourselves to the truth of that gospel. This is the work of God's grace in our lives. Not that we hold on to truth so tightly that it becomes part of ourselves and we own it, but that we release ourselves to the wisdom and truth and knowledge and spirit of God so that we learn to take on what God believes is true. Those Judaizers, those... uh, the people that were trying to force the Jewish law on new Christians meant well. They wanted people to follow the law of Moses and, and grow up to honor God. But they thought that slavish obedience to the law was necessary for salvation. But Paul would write, not in this letter, but in a later letter in, in Ephesians, that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Transformation happens and then your life changes. The internal change takes place first and then the external shows up. We see this in the example of David, uh, that David read for us. Sorry, David, I was thinking of you. And it's a biblical name. But you read the story for us about Zacchaeus. That's what I meant to say. We see this in the example of Zacchaeus as he encounters Jesus. His internal transformation takes place as he meets Jesus. He realizes the depth of his sin, of his wrongdoing, and his life is transformed, and then he goes out and makes things right. That's the order of things. It's not that he goes to make things right so that Jesus will love him. The, The love has already been given. The grace has already been given. The forgiveness has already taken place. Now Zacchaeus just goes to make things right in his relationships with others. That's what freedom in Christ looks like. Christians today can be vocal about all sorts of moral and ethical situations in the world, and we should. Our dedication to religiously inspired morality must always be filtered through the freedom that we have in Christ. We have been made free in Christ, and then we choose to live differently. We cannot save ourselves by following moral or ethical laws. We have been given the truth of the gospel, but this is never a rationale for distorting the gospel. We should always be careful to examine ourselves and our deepest convictions to see how well they align with the good news of Jesus. And if we find that something that we believe very deeply does not align with the gospel of Jesus, we should learn to let that go and to take on a new idea. I'm not speaking of anything in particular here, but a posture, a way of living that honors Christ. So, friends, hold on to the truth, but hold on to the truth lightly. Always pursue Christ. Explore the freedom that God has given us in Christ. Approach other people with humility and with the deep conviction that the way of Christ is true. Jesus said himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The good news of the gospel is that we can have new life and abundant life forgiven life in Christ. But the good news is also that our freedom in Christ requires more than a lifetime to explore. We will never run out of new life to experience in Christ. The truth of Christ is higher and more profound and more mysterious than we can imagine or understand. And part of our task is to always pursue that truth and never get to the point in our own internal lives where we think we've conquered it all. Part of the way that we practice that is through this shared experience of communion. We're we're going to share at the Lord's table here in a few moments. And, And somehow this practice reminds us of the grace of God. Somehow this meal reminds us of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. 
It reminds us of the presence of Christ in our midst. But as many times as we participate in this meal, it still remains a mystery. It still remains something that is beyond our our conquering, beyond our ownership. This is the Lord's table, not our own. And this is something that invites us into the very presence of Christ in a way that, that goes beyond words, in a way that goes beyond cognitive thought, in a, in a way that goes beyond our emotions, gauges our spirits at the deepest level to say that we are connected to the source of life through this bread and through this cup. Basic elements of what it means to have nutrition in our lives We're going to share in more than just bread and juice downstairs in in the potluck meal afterwards, and then our bodies will really be uh, nourished. But no, the, the real spiritual nourishment of our souls takes place when we encounter the living Christ. That's what Zacchaeus found. That's what the Galatians found. That's what Paul had found. And that's what we find every time we gather at this table. For it's just bread and it's just juice. But it's more than that somehow. It points us to the reality of Christ's presence in us and among us. And the symbolism is really strong here. We take this bread and we don't just say, oh, this is wonderful bread. No, we ingest it. It becomes part of us. So that we recognize that we are part of Christ. We we take Christ into ourselves to remind ourselves that Christ is already within us. And that... And that we should pay attention to Christ already within us. And, and that Christ is within us, plural, not just within me. But the same bread that I eat is the bread that you eat and the same juice. And, and we're part of the same body and it's a mystery. And the more we live into this mystery, the, the deeper it gets. The, the, the more you learn about it, the more you realize there is to it. That's the case with any field of study, really. And it's the case with our spiritual lives, too. The rabbit hole never stops. Alice keeps tumbling further and further down the hole, going down to Wonderland, and we'll we'll never get there until we get there. And we'll realize, hopefully somewhere along the way, that we've been caught in the hands of grace all along. That's what this meal is about. It's a meal of grace. Something that we don't earn or deserve, but uh, that becomes part of us. This life of Jesus informs and shapes our lives and transforms us so that we become more like him.